Kathleen Marshall sat down for a one-on-one interview in February of 2004. I'm Hal Prince, a member of the Society of Stage Directors and Choreographers, and this is Masters of the Stage, produced and presented by the Stage Directors and Choreographers Foundation in collaboration with the American Theatre Wing. Because this program was not originally intended for broadcast, it is not of the highest technical quality. As a result, portions of the conversation may have been edited. So the first um, show was Call Me Madam, which Walt, uh, by that point Walter Bond was the executive, the artistic director. Uh, Charlie Reppley directed it, and Kathy Marshall was hired as the, as the choreographer. And I, you know, love that word. And the dress reversal, the thing I will never forget, was um, something to dance about. The song at the top of the, of the, of the second act was suddenly. This dance number. It started with Time Daly, you know, and then she walked off stage, and then that fun, that wonderful sort of style of four dancers came out and danced like incredibly to this amazing music. And Time Daly strode back on stage afterwards and took the applause. <laughs> and it was, it was, it was great. And I, I said to Kathleen afterwards, I said, you know, how, how did you do that? How could you put that kind of a dance together in this short a period of time? This is just amazing. And she said, well, this was dancer Andrew created for Jerome Robbins. How bad could it be? <laughs> so there's a real lesson to, to be learned from that. Anyway, it's just been, you know, from Encore's standpoint, and Encore's feels as if, as if you're, you're a part of Encore's, and yet we acknowledge the fact that there's life outside of Encore's, just barely sometimes. <laughs> now, I thought my, 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 my show and tell to, to, to get this rolling is, um, I took this out of the Rogers and Hammerstein archives uh, earlier today. It was a production of the Rogers and Hammerstein Cinderella. It happened to be the first summer I was at the Rogers and Hammerstein office, a date which we should let go by. Um, it, and it was at the Pittsburgh Civic Light Opera, and in, in the chorus picture here is Kathleen Marshall, and here she is in rehearsal in the arms of somebody else. Um, and uh, you know, since this all took place in Pittsburgh, I thought I would start by saying now there are a lot of there are a lot of living rooms in Pittsburgh, but there's probably only one living room that lived up to the reputation of the Marshall family living room. And I know there's some stories about it, but I just thought to, to sort of start in where you got started. Tell us, tell us what's going on. I know, it's so bizarre, because a lot of people assume because my brother and I are we both in theater that, that we must have come from, uh, from a theater family, from parents from theater. And one of my parents grew up in Pittsburgh, my parents were both academics. My dad was an uh, English professor at the University of Pittsburgh. My mom, at that point, was uh, growing up, getting her PhD, and then becoming an administrator, a top administrator of Pittsburgh Public Schools, where she eventually also taught at the University of Pittsburgh. So it was an academic family. But my parents were great theater fans, and I can picture in that living room the, you know, the first stereo, the one that, you know, lived up in the speaker's building, <laughs> the one that after a while you had to put the nickel on the... And they had dozens and dozens of past albums, because um, they were theater fans, and especially musical theater fans, and we all thought that all songs came from musicals. You know, so we, there'd be a song on the radio, and we'd say, well, what's it from? <laughs> my parents would say, it's not me, it's just a song. He'd say, well, who sings it and why? <laughs> What's it about? And um, so the fact that they were theater fans and took us at a very young age, I mean, it's pretty, they took us to see, I saw my first opera when I was five, I think I saw my first Shakespeare when I was six, I and mean, they just took us to see everything. They prepared it, us for it. There was, I think, the first opera we saw was Faust. <laughs> I remember my dad, they had, they had us getting they had us, they, they, you know, learning the music ahead of time. And we were sitting down and telling the story. And we knew it was very sort of serious and adult. We were trying to 
get it. And my dad was trying to tell the story, and he's saying that he sells his soul, but he's still alive, but how the soul is in him, but it's what we couldn't understand. And finally, I dad said, look, it's a fairy story, okay? Yeah, I read you, you know, Snow White, it's in, there's dwarves and fairies and magic, and you and I don't get to question any of that. This is an adult fairy tale. Okay, that's why. Now we understand. But they took us to see everything, and I think before we ever thought that there could be, we, this could be a profession, that it was something that we loved to, to do. And when I was, I guess when I was about 10, and my brother and my sister, Mara, who Rob and Mara are twins, and two years older than me. She's not um, in a profession. She's not in a profession. She's, she's a smart one. She's a, uh, she lives in Virginia, my husband had architecture and design, huge business. But at this point, she was a fan and doing shows and plenty just like us. There was an ad for Pittsburgh Simplite Opera, which was a big summer stock company in Pittsburgh down in Hines Hall, the big symphony hall. Was doing sound music that summer, and they were doing auditions for kids. And we saw it, I'm feeling Rodney's the one who saw it, but we saw the ad in the paper and said, we want to go down and audition. And my parents said, you know, you, you guys have never had any lessons. You just, you like, do shows at school, you know, take music class at school and dance around the living room. You've never had any lessons. And all these professional kids but we'll take it down. So they bought like cheap music to Edelweiss, and we all went down, and we all auditioned, and we all got in. Mm. <laughs> and we were three of the Von Trapp children that summer with Constance Powers and Baby Members of And uh, that summer it was very smart. The kid, it was the summer stock, you know, six shows in a row, and Sound Music was the last show of the season. And they kept bringing the kids and the Von Trapp kids in through the course of the summer to kind of get us up to speed because that happened so fast. And we'd always go down, and we'd always hang out. The room next door is where the uh, ensemble was rehearsing the rest of the shows. And whenever we were had a break from our little rehearsals of Santa Cruz, we'd go next door and um, watch the dance rehearsals and watch the ensemble rehearsals. And that was the first time we saw that. I remember seeing two dancers doing what I, you know, a bar. I didn't know what it was. I just started moving on, you know, this thing on the wall and like doing everything in perfect sync with each other and then turning around and putting it on the other. I didn't even know what it was. Um, and so about a year or so after that is when we sort of started taking lessons and dance lessons and that kind of thing. I started dancing late, really, before I didn't start dancing classes when I was 13 and probably started to be 16, which was kind of great. But it was also something that we found, which I think makes a difference. It wasn't something that was thrust upon us, you know. I mean, I had a lot of them open to you know, started Valley at four, and like ten, we're you know sitting there. So much lucky that we found it ourselves. And did, did, so the Pittsburgh Symphony Opera was the first time that you saw full musicals. Yeah, being done, yeah, professional, so. yeah, that kind of thing. And we'd seen, I we'd seen touring shows come through because we were doing Nixon theater. The shows used to come through, like, but we hadn't seen anything on Broadway yet at that point. And then we started. Uh, I guess we started. My grandparents lived in Boston. We kept we'd drive back and forth from Pittsburgh to Boston. And We'd see shows in New York, actually on the way. And the first Broadway show we ever saw was um, the previous, previous Gypsy Revival with Angela Lansbury. It's the first Broadway show we saw. So that was, you know, to see that. And we were hooked and wanted to see shows all the time. But I think that's the main thing, that we were fans first before we ever thought of this as a, you know, as a career. And as you first started to see shows, what specific things about shows you began catching your pants. I know a couple years ago I had conversations with yeah. people about what was the first show you saw that you didn't like, but that's... Mm-hmm. The, the, oh, yeah, to you know, realize you're allowed to not like Right, which is the one that you thought, this isn't all that good, but before we get that, what, 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 what fascinated you? The, I think it was, first of all, we connected to a specific performance, to a specific person or personality. There was a gal in Pittsburgh in the Northern who was like the local star in Pittsburgh, 
And we actually became uh, the LNMCW. I did, I toured cats, 
a couple years after I moved here, I first moved here with actually with three other friends who were all Muslims. Uh, and one of them was Rob Ashford. So we moved up. He was he had gone to school in Pittsburgh, and we did summer swap together, and we did like little tours together, and we all moved up to New York about the same time. And we were all uh, you know, auditioning and running shows and we all shows up like at Westchester Broadway Theater and we did little tours and things like that. And then I went off on tour with cats. I was touring with cats, believe it or not, and um, got a call. At that point my girlfriend had Was he also in cats? He was. He, he had actually heard his pack of cats on Broadway. When I first moved to New York he was in Mystery Go Drood and assistant working as assistant Brown and Graciela Daniel and dance after and all that kind of stuff. And he did cats on Broadway and hurt his back that herniated disc and when he was recovering from that he couldn't dance, but he could was able to take some jobs choreographed. So it's funny how those things happen. It's like, you can't do one thing. So, so, uh, so he was doing some choreography, and he'd been doing some regional stuff and things like that. And when I was doctoring the cast, I got a call from him saying, I've just gotten a call. They want me to come up to Toronto because it's the Spider-Man is up there. And G. Rivera and Hannah and Terrence and Alan Alfred is a whole group. And they're, they... They, they want help and they don't have some geography for Cheetah and they want something to come and look at it. So Robbie actually went up with Grazia and Danielle. And Grazia couldn't continue with the project. She just was there for like a day or two. And she said, you know, she said that if you're smart, you'll use Robbie. And so they did. And then he called me and I actually sort of left the tour of cats and came to join him in Toronto to assist This does sound like a team. It's yeah. Sad. This Marshall thing. Yeah. I know, it's so funny. I mean, it's just, uh, we already done, I think I assisted him on a couple of things before that, small things. And there was a time when we were uh, working on something, just in a, um, after everyone got home, we were trying to create something for the next day, and we were kind of just throwing out a game, and we just started laughing, we just sort of broke up. I don't think we're, squeeze we do just for ourselves around the house, and now we're something's paying us to do a few bucks. You know, we're, we're getting away with something. Who, who helped both of you when you were first in New York? Did you just come and... He, you know, Rob came here, and he, he and my sister actually both moved to New York out of college, so they used to have each other when they first moved here. He went to Crazy Mountain, so he came with, he had done the, um, those league auditions and things like that, so he came to New York with an agent and, um, and fairly quickly got, uh, within a few months of living here, got uh, cast in Zorba. That and in uh, Revival Zola, which was his first Broadway show, where he met Graziella Danielle, and you know, it really was this. So, when you came to So, he was here already. Actually, Rob Ashford and I used to go hang out, because he was the dance captain of Mr. Miller Drew, which was playing at the Ethereum Theater. We used to go and hang out all the time. Um, you know, we'd have some terrible day over at the Equity Audition Center, you know. <laughs> we'd go over and he'd let us hang out in his dressing room and walk in and watch the show and watch the show and stuff like that. So, we, you know, I should him business. Emergence. Yeah, but I really was, I mean, it was really also helpful moving with a group of friends, because we're all there to help and support each other and go out on auditions, and, you know, the days of the tape machines where it's just one long tape and you couldn't erase anything, so everybody, we all had one number, and we had cell phones, it's amazing, you know, how big, it's just so busy, everybody had cell phones, so you come home from a day, you know, find out if you got to call back, you know, if you walk in the door and all the roommates were there, like, you know, it was also that sort of communal spirit of it was kind of great, you know. So, so now you and Robbie are in Toronto with Gio Rivera, and you have been, what was the task at hand? And you... Well, the task kept expanding because the thing is, is that you know how when they, when they think something's wrong, the first instinct is, well, let's got to fix the steps. But you know what? It's never the steps. 
you know, it's the concept, it's the, it's the full, whatever. So, you know, start it off, can you fix some steps? Because it's not serving Cheetah in the right way. But at that point, uh, Robbie was limited by the fact, limited by the fact that they, you know, they weren't going to change the orchestration to dance arrangements or the costumes or whatever or the songs. So you had to sort of just really try to just make her look better on stage and make her more comfortable with what she's doing. But the show was going from there to London prior to Broadway. And what ended up happening is by the time the show opened in London, everything she did was changed with the exception of the title song. Otherwise, everything she did in the show changed, including numbers coming out and numbers going in. And, uh, and even the songs that existed, we were able to go back into the studio and do the dance arrangements and the orchestrations and you know, reconceive the numbers in that way. But one would assume that Jeter Rivera is somebody who would be fairly articulate about what she can and can't do and yeah. what works for her. Yeah. Um, so, and, and obviously, I mean, I assume that the original choreographer, there was wasn't providing her with stuff. How much did she participate in, in sort of, or was it sort of helped me? Well, like I've never done a show before. You know, I, just need help. I mean, I think like anything, so many, you know, everybody goes into a situation of, with optimism and with trust. I think you have to, in a, in a way. So, you know, and I don't think an actor can go out on stage to do something unless you have some belief in what you're doing. So, uh, it was actually a great lesson to see how Rob, and he basically had learned this from Grazia Lennon Young, who's, who's uh, method is so nurturing. And so it was, it was great for me to sort of watch Rob be so nurturing with Cheetah so that she didn't feel terrible about what she was doing at night, but only positive about how we can make it better. So you have to sort of gain that trust and say, not that this is bad, but this will be better for you, or have this, you know. He just was on and, instinct. He was... Yeah, and also but with such respect for her, because he, he knew her, admired her, and loved her so much that he only wanted to make her look great. I mean, the, the classic thing also you did, it's such a factor of sort of, you know, age. I think mean, she was in her early 60s when she did this. And of course, to the creators of the show were all her age or older. So they thought of her as still as you know, sexy Cheetah. And her first appearance was out of the bathtub. As if she was in the bathtub and she had her eyes talking on her sort of silhouette and towels held up in her room. And you sort of think, that's not, you know, She's, but she's not Sonia Braga in the movie, which is why I won't. She's not, um, you know, uh, a siren in that way. Uh, and then there was a number in the first act called um, Don't Even Think About It. It was kind of like a Chado Chiku number. She came out and she had a little Angora sweater and a little short skirt. And she said, uh, the lyrics were, I got two nice hips, you know? I got two nice lips, you know? You want to squeeze them? You want to kiss them? Don't even think about it. It was like this sort of tough, sexy number. And you're like, this is like she's like she could be a grandmother, just not right. And you know, and it wasn't taking advantage of what she had. And so then, what what Rob did, he did, and, I, and also again, this is a lesson that I sort of used to do research, research. He said, okay, the whole thing is that this Aurora character, this movie goddess, has to be uh, has to be something that it's cheetah, and has to be something that the character of Molina want, uh, uh, admires and wants to emulate. Somebody who is brave, somebody who sacrifices all for love, somebody who's strong, all the all the qualities he thinks he doesn't have that he admires in this in this movie heroine. And so then Roddy decided to base it all on Marlene Dietrich rather than on some, you know, pinup girl from the forties, you know. So that basically we looked at, we looked at a lot of Dietrich movies and research and photographs 
and there was a photograph of her in a workman's clothing. So then that became the model for this one number called um, uh, Where You Are, which was really written. And it was then, and that's actually another the number that was you know, on the Tony Awards. And it was a white, white, white tuxedo and white fedora, which was totally based on the Mona Lisa film costume. And she was sent, but it, it, again, it, it fit Sheena well because she was tough and she was sexy and she was smart and she you know, all of those things. And so it, it was something, it, was, it fit her and it fit the show and it fit the character. Um, I want to go back to something that you said very, very briefly here, which is it's not the steps, it's about something like, but I think I, one of the mysteries to me of the choreography in general is when is it the steps and when is it something else? Yeah. Um, and you were talking about research. Do you find that in, in situations like that and, and others, you know, does research give you the steps or does research give you the, something else? I think, you know, research can lead you to vocabulary of something that you're trying to, specifically at a time or place that you need to do. You know, doing swing dancing, okay, you can go to the Lincoln Center Library and look up swing dancing and see all kinds of stuff. Or I did, you know, also flowers and encores last year, okay, I don't know about anything about, you know, Haitian sort of dance. So I went and looked at Haitian dance, and I also looked at a lot of Catherine Dunham works, because that was the sort of theatrical concert dance version of, of folk dance. Because sometimes folk dance, quite honestly, is so simplistic. It's not theatrical, it's not stage-worthy. And, you know, somebody like Jerry Robbins who would do the sort of research, the folk dance of, of uh, Thailand for The King and I. And all the vocabularies there, of course, that he makes it into a much more bigger theatrical context. But I think that, um, you know, ultimately that it's there, there's, there's a lot, there are a lot of people who can do great flashy steps, and there are a lot of people who have, you know, incredibly, I, you know, I wish I had a more sort of expansive vocabulary, just in terms of, of, uh, of style. And, uh, and I think that there are a lot of people who have that in a wonderful way. But, but, quite, but quite honestly, if, it's not, if it doesn't come out of some kind of story or character, I think it has less impact. And I think that's why, I mean, you know, I watched, you know, you watched the, the Grammys last night or something like that, and dancers come out and they're doing, you know, fabulous, you know, hip-hop, great, oh my God, look at those fun steps, they're really so great, it's, it's really kind of sexy and funky and fun, and I wish I could you know how to do that kind of stuff. But quite honestly, you know, it's sort of like having a candy bar, and when it's over, it's over. You know, and it doesn't really last as long as something that it, that it came out of something, um, it's the context of the I mean, quite honestly, the simplest steps, I mean, you know, in uh, something like the beginning time, when they finally in Shalmi dance, polka. Well, it's, what is it, a polka? It's a polka, <laughs> the guy in bare feet and the girl in a big dress. But emotionally, you cry when they start to polka around, because you just, it's so exuberant, it's, you know, the, the moment is built there beautifully, the music transports you, you know, it all spills again. So it's, it's the fact that right at, the movement happens right at an emotional time. That gives that more impact than you know, twenty dancers out there, you know, keeping their faces up there. And, and when when you started to become more sophisticated about who the different people were who were doing this in this world that you were now intrigued by, whose work fascinated you and for what reason? Um, I think well, again, mostly you know, I saw movie musicals more than Broadway musicals. Broadway musicals, I saw the sort of summer stock version of it, not necessarily the original. So I think when you see like. Bob Boston's work on film or something like Cabaret or Cherry and those who see that style. Um, without knowing it, I was a great admirer until I, I didn't know who they were for a long time, with Robert Alton and Michael Kidd in their movies, and certainly 
um, Gene Kelly and Stan Dillon in their, their movie musicals. Um, but I think that, you know, in terms of, uh, I guess Michael Kidd and Jerry Robbins especially, because I think they're both, um, they don't necessarily have a recognizable style because they, they, um, their, their style depends on the show that they're doing. It changes from show to show, except for their character base, their story base, they're usually very exuberant, and they have a lot of humor. So that's, that I admire all of that. Now, am I right that you went to, to Smith and studied with Jim Zielak? who was, yeah, but one of the reasons I went to Smith is because she was there, and she was um, one of the founders of American Dance Machine. She was one of Agnes Mills' main assistants. She was in the, in the original Kingdom she was in the original Major Party, and she danced the American Ballet Theater. She danced with Bill King, so she had this, she straddled the worlds of ballet, and the, at that point, I was really just a ballet student, um, and, and so bridging the world with that. I mean, she, we did as a dance concert in college. She taught us the, um, uh, the Carousel of Ballet. We did some excerpts from Carousel of Ballet. We did some solo and things like that. I remember she was teaching me that solo, and just tiny. And she just, in front of my eyes, she turned into the 16-year-old girl. I mean, it was sort of remarkable. And she um, she never did, when she was teaching that dance, she never said counts or steps. She never said PK1, whatever. She would just demonstrate it for me and tell me what she was thinking. And that, so that was fascinating. That was sort of, you know, a new way of like, oh, it's opposed to class or it's all square. That, that, that that led you to think that the musical theater, there was something yeah. there that, that, was, that was attractive to yeah. yeah. And I think that even though I sort of had sort of training in classical dance, the concert dance world, I sort of danced in a little, you know, semi-pro companies back home, but it was, that was such a tunnel vision. And, you know, I, at the same time, I was pulled to the musical theater world. So I think it, I, I, I guess I just love the joy of that world. Concert dancing seemed to be ultimately more, more serious and somber. I think that the exuberance of Okay, now I'm going to move forward to the to to, to here. You're, you're in New York now, and, and you're not. Was was going to be that? That wasn't your that first was, New York gig. That was my first New York gig. I done my first thing as a choreographer. Way on again, it's always sort of these you know ripple circles that keep going out and out. Um, after I sister my brother, I'm done. He's inspired me, and I also sister mom. She loves me, Danielle. The Broadway. Um, there was a guy named Michael Leeds who was directing a review called Something on a Star at this theater, George Street Theater, the Playhouse in New Brunswick, New Jersey. He needed a choreographer. His friends with John Kander. Called John Kander and said, I need a choreographer to do this. It's sort of um, all different period styles. And, and, and John Kander recommended me, you knowing this viral. So well, I was lucky enough to do that. And that eventually it went to good speed and then eventually came in and said, Why you on Broadway? That was my first Broadway show. And, um, but before it came to Broadway, well, it was uh, still in its whole region. Um, that's what it called me Adam. I got to call it Which was sort of out of the blue. And uh, I, I was very, I had no idea it was going to be reviewed in the papers at the time. I had no idea that it was going to be such an industry event and so many people were going to be there. Thanks a lot. I didn't <laughs> well, so before calling that and starting, nobody was sure it was going to be. Right. Nobody knew. I remember the day yeah. Time Daily agreed. We were all like, oh my God, this is, this is going to be noticed. Yeah. And there was, you know, that there wasn't a Sunday night show. There were four shows, right? Thursday, Friday, to Saturday. And New York Times Review came out on Saturday. And the um, <clears throat> last paragraph, I like, guess, was like all about that dance. Something you dance, it was all about that dance. And, uh, 
and there it was. It was like all of a sudden, oh my god, you know, I was here I am. And I thought that's frightening because it could be just as easily be like this is the worst piece of you know we've ever seen. Yeah. You know, so you think it's so it's so, it's so easy. To go <clears throat> Since you, for, for whatever reason, have become an expert in the art of revival, <laughs> I want to talk a little bit about, um, about your experience in, in revivals. I, I didn't you know, know that you've worked with, you've, you have directly choreographed your own at Encores and now on Broadway with the wonderful town. You have worked with British directors, you have worked with American directors. So I thought, you know, what, what, what's there to say about, about creating new dances for shows in which they are, in theory, Quite specifically placed. Right. I mean, <clears throat> the thing is, is that with Kissing Kate, everywhere we're in the revival, everywhere that there is dance in the revival, there was dance in the original. You know, basically the same characters who danced, danced, and basically the dance happened in the same place. But it was all new dance music, it was all new arrangements, it was all new orchestrations, it was all new choreography, and sometimes new ideas. Um, and so that's, you know, you're sort of drawing between the lines, but with a lot of freedom, also because. The movie of Kissing Kate um, didn't have all the songs, all the songs from the, the show weren't in the movie. And two dark copies used in a weird way in the movie, and they were, you know, tap dancing on four quarters coffee table. And so, you know, so in a way you have a kind of blank slate, because nobody remembers, or, or there's no record of, or that I know of, of Honey Holmes' choreography from the original Kissing Kate. So, in a way, you kind of have a, a, a you know, free reign there. Did you listen to all the original dance music? We did. We listened to it. David Chase did the dance arrangements, and he played through it. I think it was actually one of those one of those British recordings where they play every new music. <laughs> we love those recordings, which are great. They're great historical. But they're, God, they're dry as can be. So anyway, we listened to that, uh, and so at least all the dance music was on there. So some of the themes we used, but um, that very and very like like the Tonic for Harry the original. There was Tonic for Harry the song with the trio. And Bianca song finished, and it was a solo rose dance and adagio for Harold Lang. And it was a sort of waltz tempo, and it was obviously a classical variation, you know, solo variation for him. And I actually took a page from the movie where in Tom Dicker Harry, the dance is incorporated into the number, and more like some drum Robin's Fancy Free, where each one has a solo fine for her attention. So then, and then finishes, that comes back to the song beyond this, in the, in the whole number. So, you know, so yes, it's the same idea of the suitors dancing and then this, but we could put a whole different concept. But so, so the, are, are we to believe, I don't want to put words in your method, the, the choreography of Kiss Me Cake in particular, the, when Pro being the original, the original choreography didn't give you all who were putting on this revival enough to say, you know. Right, let's do it like that. Because I think there was also a, um, a sort of uh, class, I have a feeling there was a classical elegance to that original choreography. And we wanted both in the onstage world and the offstage world for it to have a little more, uh, a little more muscle. So that, um, uh, you know, this, there was a, there was a, there's a dance um, uh, for Kate Petruchio's wedding in the end of the first act. And it was called, you know, we, was, we sing above. And it felt like a very sort of you know, Tarantella, you know, you could just see it. You could right. see the tambourines and you could see all the little, you know, fadabasks and all the little, you know, steps and like a little sort of folk dance. Um, but what we thought is that it seemed to, to me that the, in the show, in the show, each act ends with a wedding. Kate Trucchio's wedding at the end of the first act and Bianca and Lucentio's um, wedding at the end of the second act. And to contrast these weddings, this rough, spontaneous wedding of these two high spirited people, 
So that, instead of doing a little Tarantella, we did some crazy grape dance. And we put the ladies in the grape dance. And stabbing grapes. And I wanted to make it sort of earthy and spontaneous and sensual. And then for this, we're there for the wedding. The second act, which is a more sort of idealized, you know, romantic wedding, we had sort of lovely caban that was kind of um, more Shakespearean in nature. So we wanted that to feel like, what if you were doing the dance with the contents of the, of the play itself? Just doing the taking the true of Delport. What kind of dance would you do that? That so not as technical, but um, but you know there's the sense of, of what fits you know the, the, you're right the, the dance from that sort of didn't, didn't seem you know, iconic yeah and right away I said to Mario Pagnini's we're not going to put people in tights and pointy shoes it's not going to be it's, this is going to be the sort of you know if Gene Kelly would do this he certainly wouldn't be put on pointy shoes he'd have on leather boots yeah we had it'd be all sort of more sensual. and then you know something doing like Follies which I don't know if you've read Ted's book about his experience. Mm-hmm. As an apprentice, on the original, as a gopher, you know, on the original, it's fascinating. And I tell you, with Follies, uh, I wasn't aware, and I guess I probably, maybe I should have been, but I guess I wasn't aware of what, uh, as much as I love Follies, and how sacred that show is to <laughs> That either they, either they saw it, they changed their lives. Or they've never seen it, and they've been waiting their whole lives to see some production that is like, you know, you can't even imagine how idealized it is right. in their head. Or they never liked and, it. Or they never liked it, and you better prove why, you know. And it's tricky because, as you know, ultimately it's a it's a pastiche of things put together more than a formal barrier. And I think the tricky thing there is that. But so um, you didn't you didn't have knowledge of, of the icon that it might have been, and the director Matthew Borges didn't either. I'm assuming. No, I mean we knew, of course, that it was this legendary production. And I think there exists, you know, what, like 10 minutes of bits and pieces, bits and pieces of with no sound of some, you know, somebody holding a shaky camera. And a, you know, and so, you, and it was obviously poured over all the sort of production stills and research material and that kind of thing. But the, what, what really sort of hit me with that is that even though I didn't recreate any of Michael Bennett's steps, and even though we did do arrangements and orchestrations, because the concepts for those numbers, the way Michael Bennett invented them, were so strong and so wonderful. We kept a lot of the same. I mean, the big idea, of course, the mirror, mirror with the ghosts coming in and, and mirroring, you know, other, or, or something like that, or, or um, Buddy's Blues done as a vaudeville in one number. So, in a way, even though Michael Bennett's original staging and props and you know the realization of it, we none of those numbers were sort of completely reinvented. And I think that actually was. Um, that maybe we should have been bolder in doing so. Because I think that ultimately people don't necessarily know, they just know, oh, that's kind of like the original, you know. Yeah, you and, know, said two things going against you. One is that, although I don't know that anybody was aware of this, but the cast of the revival was probably to a man and woman 20 years older mm-hmm. than, or 10 years at least older than the original production. And also, nobody knew when Follies went to rehearsal what the mirror number was. So Michael right. Bennett got to take all these old ladies and teach them this dance, which right. they didn't realize until they got on stage. In previous, when they were working in Boston, when they were thinking right. about a lot of other stuff, that they were actually the chorus backing up somebody else. Right. So they all wanted to get out of the number the minute they realized that. <laughs> <laughs> but I think they're too wise today. Yeah. I don't really want to do that number where I'm. Sure. And, still, and the number, honestly, in the show, every night, stopped the show. I mean, it got a huge, huge hand, and, and, and you know, sort of in that way, was very satisfying to do and, was, and, and touched an audience in that way. But in terms of the critical reaction, it seems like a sort of just, you know, 
um, rehash it for somebody else's idea. And, and I think that that's what you get. Ultimately, people understand big ideas and concepts, and I think that's what they respond to. Um, I mean, you know, I'll, my brother and I always say, you know, what stops a show is emotion stops a show, a show. Not necessarily flash. And, you know, emotion can mean all kinds of things. It can mean just exuberance and joy. You're just, you know, out of your mind with excitement because you've been, you know, propelled. And like some Tommy Tune number, where they just do a step over and over again, and you just can't stand it, you're so excited. <laughs> and uh, uh, and there, there are things that... Uh, or you can stop you know, emotion in different ways, you know, like in Shall We Dance, where sort of that's the emotion that you respond to. I think the Gretchen elements said to me that one of the things about Michael Bennett is he, he used to try to find, to find exactly when, which bar he had the audience applaud. <laughs> going over and over. And so yeah. part of it was repetition, but also part of yeah. it was trying to figure out when do I have them? Yeah. When are they mine? When are they hilarious <laughs> and they'll clap? Yeah, and, and there are certainly, you know, sort of tricks you can use, or at least, uh, uh, you know, sort of classic things, classic things that you can use to sort of get, you know. I mean, quite honestly, is that, you know, a kick line is sort of, uh, can be tacky, or a kick line can be absolutely right. I remember when my brother and I were doing um, Dan Yankees, and, you know, you've got to have heart, which in the original was done, typical George Abbott show, right, in one, and then full stage, in one, and then full stage, and you've got to have heart, because four people in one, you know, before they were making And of course now, hard, you're thinking, okay, now this is an absolute, you know, classic song. Everybody knows the song. It's a great song. How can we now take this to another level? And so it had many parts to it. And ended up with the guys in the locker room and half the guys in towels and just exuberant, kidding around, crazy kind of horse play among these ball players. And so it, and, and then I remember when we were creating it, and it got to the band, you know, they pulled back, you got a heart. And we said, should we just do it? And we did. We had them in, like, all <laughs> arms around each other, half-dressed with towels and everything else, and doing this kind of, you know, in all different shapes and sizes, doing a kick line. And it was, that's one of those places where using the cliche actually sort of worked and, and, um, and seemed to sort of, and that's, of course, what a bunch of athletes, that's what that, that is, that's step they couldn't do. Right, and to them, it's a surprise. Yeah. I want you to follow us and communicate with Doug Beck and here and contrast those two directors there. I mean, Mike, Matthew Orchard is, is a great, Michael Blakemore right. is actually a who knows what he is, poses as an Australian. He's also Australian, but trained and lives in. So know, he's more a Brit than, yeah, than not. He's lived in, yeah, in, in London, you know, since he. Well, also it's generational because Matthew's of my generation and, you know, and, and Michael's um, older. And I think that, you know. Uh, I mean, did they have kids? Living rooms in Pittsburgh that they danced around. You know, well, Michael. The interesting is Michael Blakemore because he came. He was trained in London and he was and worked with Olivier and you know was Olivier's assistant director and in his company and toured with him and all the guys. It's a funny story. Doing some, I mean, he had stories about like, you know, Vivian Lee and, and Olivier, you know, to, to match the sort of cake through you know Billy Vanessa and Frank Graham stories. And uh, so his he had he liked he had naturally theatrical sense about things. In terms of, you know, as a comedy director, the original voice is off, and like I said, and I mean, obviously, is brilliant with comedy and physical comedy and a verbal comedy. And so I think that in a way, he was not resistant to theatrical ideas. And um, he was, that was a sort of, I loved working, it was a great partnership because I basically staged all the musical numbers. I mean, it's different with different directors and different choreographers. There's some directors that 
like, like Linda, basically whenever there was music involved, I was involved. And even though I also I would run every body about what I thought I was doing later in the so sweet, he always say, you know, I absolutely know absolutely nothing about that. So you just tell me to shut up. <laughs> but it occurred to me that perhaps maybe <laughs> And you know what? And he was always right. He was always right. And one of the things that he really was right about is he would say, you know, these Cole Porter lyrics are so um, you know, illustrative. And then you don't necessarily need to then illustrate everything with a gesture, you know, so that sometimes trust that we'll be listening and we don't need to set necessarily, you know, so it was a good lesson to pairing things more sometimes. You also trusted him to say that and he trusted yeah. you to tell you that. To, to, to yeah, talk that. yeah. So that was great. And now he was a bit driven because he, he uh, you know, hadn't really, he directed, I think, a fiddler on the roof in London that, uh, or actually up in Sheffield or something. But um, obviously, more from the play point of view, Arlington, True West, and you know, the plays that he directed, and Shakespeare, and London, all that kind of thing. So he approached sort of things from a text point of view. But he also would sometimes stage ballads and duets and things like that. So, um, but he was so uh, he was so smart about the text and everything. I thought that was a very that was very sort of fascinating to work on, and. Um, and it also just sort of open up your mind in other ways. I mean, I remember doing an, an interview. Actually, we did a joint interview for something. And this interviewer said to us, so what's going to make this, you know, the definitive qualities of the 21st century? And we kind of looked at each other like, we're, we're not doing that. You know, we're sort of, we're, just, we're doing A follies. We don't think we're doing B follies. And we're not trying to make an eclipse anything else or be the only one or whatever. It's, this, is a, this is a sort of, you know, the point was just to try to do a smaller, more personal version and with less, you know, less uh, stuff mostly because we had a lot uh, well, less money. Um, but, but, uh, money beats less stuff. Right. So, smaller cats, smaller orchestra, smaller production values, all that kind of thing, but thinking that there's enough of this, uh, of the drama in this to make this worthwhile. And so it was kind of interesting to see the the, you know, the response, which ranged from, you know, positive to absolutely, like, these people should, you know, off of their heads. I mean, it's, you know, so it was really kind of amazing. But did, did, did you watch both of those and think, I, I would prefer to be the director of this? You know, it's funny, because I think on something like this we can, I think actually, given the, the assignment that, that was, I was glad to have that vision later, because I think in a way that was a show that probably worked better because of that, because he was able to really, you know, concentrate on those Shakespeare scenes and those comedy scenes. I mean, it's one of the few musicals where there are some scenes that have no songs in them. You know, you know almost every scene in a musical has a song in it somewhere. And there's some scenes in that have no song. They're just a farcical scene or a fight scene or whatever, and don't lead to a song. And, um, and, a, and certainly on the Shakespeare test. And I think I was able to devote, you know, more, that was a place more time and, and Create more texture in some of the dance numbers, I think. Um, but it depends. I mean, I think it's natural for choreographers to become directors because you're basically you're doing all the same things, if not on the same level. I mean, you're you're dealing with designers and writers and actors, and certainly when you stage, uh, like I had experience of staging somebody's ballet or staging somebody, you know, you're you're basically directing an actor. I mean, sometimes it's one on one in the room, you know, staging somebody's ballet or duet or something. That. So it's natural, I think, for choreographers. I think it's actually probably more natural, in a way, 
for choreographers of musicals to become director, directors of musicals than for directors of plays to become directors of musicals. I mean, I think there's sometimes, there are people who naturally go back and forth between the two and do a great job with both, but it's not necessarily for everybody. It's not necessarily everybody who directs a good play can turn around and direct a musical. And, I mean, there's certainly plenty of examples like Michael Blake and Ray Jerry's and people who do both very well. I think the biggest thing, though, is that you're, as a choreographer, you have this shield in front of you of the director. You have the director who can take the brunt of, you know, of the, of the hits, whether they're critical hits, whether they're notes from the producers, whether they're, you know, I mean, they're, they, you basically have this shield. And certainly the director goes to many more meetings and, you know, often has to sort of, you know, goes off to producer right. drag them off to some meeting that you don't have to be involved with. But, um, and my brother and I talked about this and say that, you know, when you become a director choreographer, you're the director yourself, all of a sudden that shield is gone. And that little, you know, that, that little cynical part of you that, can, that as a choreographer can sit in the back of the house and say, I hope somebody does something about that costume. <laughs> 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 yeah, really, it's kind of broad. You know, let her keep doing that. And then all of a sudden you realize, oh, that's me. <laughs> you know, I have to go tell them that I think that, you know, but do, do, do I take from this that the idea, since you are now you have a Broadway director choreographer credit, that you don't, that you will, you will keep your mind open to being the choreographer? Oh yeah. oh, yeah. I mean, I think it depends on the project, it depends on the director. But I think I would never just say, oh, I'm going to just that again. I mean, I think that, that there, are shows, there are certain shows that, um, that warrant that kind of you know, separation, church and state. And I also think that. For me, depending on what um, what the show is, I mean, something like Little Shop of Horrors is not a choreographer's showcase by any means. I mean, there's no big dance ensemble, there's no breakout dance numbers, and there's no reason to shove them in or add them in either. Um, I just think, I just love the show so much. I think it's so smart and funny, and it's one of the most tightly best-written shows ever. And I just, there's not, that, that, uh, there's not a song in that score that I don't love and couldn't listen to five times in a row. And so... I just wanted to work on that show around that kind of skill, I mean, about that smart, silly show. Well, let's talk about, about Wonderful Town. I, I think there are people in the business who might think from her reputation that, that Donna Murphy would be somebody who you probably want that wall of something no, else. <laughs> um, but that's not the case. And in fact, I've seen, I've seen Donna in a social situation with the Marshalls, and she clearly there seems to be a camaraderie there. Yeah. Was, yeah. She, was she a handful? No, I mean, I think Donna is specific. I mean, she is, she works, you know, harder than anybody I know. And uh, and she is very specific about everything that's around her and, you know, and that she's involved with. And you just, you need to be able to keep up with her and answer her questions. But I think you should be able to keep up with her and answer her questions. And even if the answer is, you know what, I'm not sure when you think about it, that's an okay answer sometimes. And sometimes when she, you know, it's a very specific reason, and you have you have to be able to say not just because that's the way I want it, or because uh, you know, I mean, even if, even if there is a technical reason for it, you have to sort of figure out how can we finesse the technical reason so that she understands. You know, I mean, my favorite thing is there's it's a silly thing, but uh, the way our set is because everything's been very open and exposed, and the orchestra's on stage. We don't have very much furniture coming on, and what does come on comes on a little pallet. The sofa comes on, and there's a little pallet that comes on with the table and some chairs. And there's a scene where there's a sort of you know, failed little party in the first act, and there are two chairs that are left, you know, they're left sitting on the floor. And as we're sort of blocking the scene, I said, you know, we have a room 
because everything sort of moves all this stuff. And in my head, I'm thinking, okay, somehow, because I don't want when the scene's over and it blacks out to see some little fruit guy in silhouette run out and get this chair. Somehow, I want to get these two chairs back on that pallet so that they can go off, everything go off. Love them. So as I'm thinking ahead, you know, as we're walking the scene, I'm thinking, how can that happen? How can that happen? How can that happen? And then we get to the scene where uh, this leading man, you know, they don't have a romantic relationship yet, but eventually they will. He goes off in a huff, and she's upset by it, and her sister comes in and says what happened, and she kind of doesn't want to talk with her sister. And Donna is somebody who always wants things to do. It's like, okay, the dinner party's over, and it's a bust, and he's left. And I'm like, why don't you clean <laughs> You know, so that she's upset and walking around, and then I'm like, you know what? You know what would be great? If you can... <laughs> so there's Donna Murphy, you know... Actually, you know, actually, she, she got it, that right. She absolutely got it, and she she said, "Okay, it's, it, first of all, it gives her a physical action because the whole point is she doesn't want her sister to be see that she's upset, so she's kind of trying to avoid her, and she's somebody who needs a task in order to, you know, she, to 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 uh, focus her energy somewhere, and it works out for and it actually sort of, you know, and, and meanwhile the sisters I need to follow around saying, "What happened? What happened? I don't want to talk about it. I don't want to talk about it." And she's moving these chairs back to you know, where they originally were. And it also tells you that the evening's over. And it was, you know, the dinner party's over and it didn't work. So it's this weird, stupid little thing that actually serves a serves a, a technical function and actually gives her, you know, a, a, a physical task that matches her emotional needs at the time. So I think it's just that kind of thing that you have to make sure that, that you know, it's not that she... You know, it's, it, she she wants the input and the feedback. It's not like she yeah, it's not like she wants to sort of just direct herself, but she needs she, you know, and, and even so, if you sort of try something, she she'll sometimes take it away and, and find a way that it, that she can feel comfortable doing it. Well, I do know the king, and I one of the things that frustrated her was that she would say to the director, "I have this idea." The director would say, "That is interesting." <laughs> and then, Never spoken. Yeah. yeah. But okay, so in, in wonderful town, you have Donna, you've solved Donna, you have. Five million dollars. You have. You can you all, you, well, okay. think about you have it. Slow yeah. people, yeah. all of whom you know, are looking at you. How, how do you deal with that pressure? I mean, the the, the good thing about Wonderful Town is that because we've done it in all fours, and because we did it in this kind of um, less pressurized situation, because you know, with encores, if they hit, great. You can't get any by the last performance, great. And you know, even the ones that are sort of middling, well, you have a respectful, you have a smart, smart audience who kind of gets it, and understands it, and it's just—they're always grateful for you that you try. <laughs> they're always grateful that you said, "Oh, yeah, no, I, yeah, yeah." I never saw the show before, and now I am. And um, sometimes why is right? So that's why it never was done down well. <laughs> but I think that so there's a little less less pressure there. And the fact that Wonderful Town had been such a hit at encores and. Don had got blown reviews, and production had got blown reviews. And you're, it, the pressure was, okay, how can we try to harness what worked there, enhance it for a Broadway audience without losing the spirit of what it had, and yet still you know, deliver a, a Broadway show? And are we fooling ourselves? You know, is, our, is our Encore City Center audience so smart and educated that they'll, they'll accept much more than a uh, more traditional Broadway audiences that doesn't know this came from that concert setting and what the, what the assignment is over there. So we're always sort of trying to, you know, so the pressure is to have, is this enough? There's my, my favorite line in um, 
beautiful gallop that plays. Very amusing sense of Diana Vreeland. And she picks up, she throws something on a chair, and she looks at it, and she says to the audience, is it too much or not enough? <laughs> so, and it's always so true. It's like, is this, you know, have we delivered enough? Is it clear? You know, is it... Um, so it's, it's wonderful that audiences who have no history with the show and the City Center Encore seem to be responding to this kind of unconventional way of doing the Broadway musical. Orchestra on stage and all these other things. Orchestra on stage. Yeah. Before we open for questions, not wanting to be like Marty Short, who I had to start with yeah. your brother by saying, okay, who do you hate? Yeah, hate. <laughs> I wanted to ask you. I could probably answer. Mm. Oh, really? Yeah. Anybody know? Yeah. 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 You got it. <laughs> <laughs> you got it. Victor Victoria, that was a hard one. More I, I wanted to ask, um, what, in your career, which is an extraordinary one and only, only getting better by the day, what's, what would you say is the most extraordinary challenge that you have uh, had, whether you succeeded in, in it or not? I think, I mean, in terms of uh, the, most, the most difficult, hardest project of mine was Susical because it was. You know, we had this beautiful experience with uh, Stephen Lindo, and this workshop that people went kind of crazy over. I wasn't quite sure why. You know, it was a very bare bones workshop. And then translating that workshop to a commercial production proved to be, you know, fraught with problems. And uh, many problems, and which we never fully overcame. And it's funny because, quite honestly, the, the most, the the smoothest rise that I've had in creating something which is making a wonderful town. And it seems odd that, I mean, or maybe it's right, that the things, that no, there didn't seem to be a lot of angst or tension or disagreement. I mean, it just seemed that everybody was, you know, cliche on the same page. And they'd you know, look left and look right and say, is this, is this right? Do you like this idea? Do you like this idea? And everyone's going, yeah. is, should we cast this person? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, they come with costume. Is everyone like that? Yeah. You know, everybody sort of seemed to move forward. Um, very smoothly. And in Susical, in fact, we had, you know, these classic, wonderful characters and this great, uh, you know, uh, great stories to, to, to call from and then these great writers writing this great score. The fact that it just, you know, didn't didn't all come together was kind of, you know, heartbreaking. You think, you should, you know. When was your first, you said that you weren't quite sure why you're doing it so crazy about it. I still remember hearing that. Yeah. When did you first sense, uh oh, we're in trouble? Well, we were in Boston. And, uh, you know, the. You've seen the set designs and the costume designs at the Comic Con? Well, I mean, I wasn't quite sure, but I also, you know, wasn't the director. And so I feel like, you know, again, somebody else says the buck stops there. And, um, you know, because I think we never were quite. I don't think. Quite honestly, I mean, I I think that, that, that there wasn't enough. Discussion of what, what exactly is going to be the domain of this? Are we recreating this, the illustrations? Are we not? Is it representational? Is it not? Is it modern? Is it you know? And I think that when um, we did our first preview in Boston, and I saw coming in the door four-year-old girls clutching a cap and hat doll. I thought, oh shit! I really thought because they're here to see Sesame Street. They're here to see. You know, the characters they know from those books come on stage and skip and wave, you know, and and they're not here to see some other take on Dr. Seuss. 
And, you know, and, and, and I think that the, the way that it looked and, you know, everything was sort of use these characters and stories as a germ that didn't necessarily cause you to replicate the, um, the illustrations, you know, and that kind of thing. And you, you stayed throughout. I was there throughout. But I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> You know what? You know what? It's funny because usually, usually the choreographer, the lighting designer, the first. Time. <laughs> and I, I think that's because there's no stuff connected. Do you know what I mean? Steps is just like fixed steps. It's just like Robbie's assignment with the spiral. Fixed, fixed steps because steps can come and go without stuff coming and go. And same thing with lighting vibes. You can use the same equipment and change, you know, change the lighting. Off. Yeah. But you know, you bring a new set designer in, a costume designer, and whatever, you know, there's gonna be a lot more checks have to be written, you know. So um, I don't know, I think that um, if yeah. you if you weren't fired, I assume you were part of the group that, that was making the decision to change other people. Or were you No, no, not as no, not no, not not at all. Um, you know, quite honestly, you know, when um, when the costume designer was replaced uh, out of town, um, I was one of the few dissenting people to say, isn't this too soon? You know, not necessarily that the... There problems. Not, not, not necessarily that could, you know, can we see if we can, you know, can we decide what we're changing it to when maybe this designer can help us get there? And, you know, so I, I actually was uh, kind of dissenting up there. But... Um, but even then, I wasn't really, you know, a vote. It was for, and I also, and then uh, I remember, because um, my brother actually came in on the show, and I, I, I guess I could kind of see the writing on the wall that something was going to happen. You can, you can always sense that, you know, something's going to happen. And I was taken up to dinner by my <laughs> That's always a good one. Okay, Shanley, I'll never forget it. And we go to dinner, and, uh, you know, between, pa- I don't think I ate a thing. It's like passing the dinner summer. I'm like, the hell's that? <laughs> and um, they said, uh, you know, um, they said we'd like to bring somebody else in. Okay. And they said, how would you feel if we asked um, your brother? I was like, oh, thank God. Thank God. Of course, you know, that, you know, would be the best. And I think that he came in partly as a favor to me because that's not, that's a completely, you know, unthankless uh, job, thankless situation to come in and try to help out with something which is. Obviously, that far along already. Um, and uh, but he came. Most the most important thing he brought is he just brought energy and focus and uh, and just uh, positive energy to the company and just you know kind of trying to make everybody feel And you know it's tricky because you know if what had opened by the time we opened, it's also I, I one of my sort of bugaboos these days is that reviews. Columns have turned into reviews, and reviews have turned into columns. So that before a show even comes here, if it's out of town, if it's workshop or whatever, you can go anywhere online or not only online, in print, and already they're starting to write the history of what the show is before it's ever been in a front of an audience or public performance or certainly had a discussion about they hear this and they hear this is good and they hear that's a problem and blah blah blah. So they're, they're, that's a, and now the reviews are like the gossip club. The reviews give you, instead of just responding to what the finished product, the review brings up the history of who left and who was there and how what the rumors were and previews and rehearsals and out of town and blah, blah, blah. 
So you sort of feel like, God, I mean, and part of me thinks, if what we had, what had opened, what had, the first thing that had gone in front of an audience at Boston was musical, if that had opened on Broadway with no drama, hmm. what would have been the result? It certainly couldn't have been any worse. So, you know, what would have been the response without any sort of, uh, you know, preconceived notions of, well, let's see, you know, after all this, you know, drama, let's see, let's see if this is going to happen. Yeah, yeah. So, I don't know, it's the, I think that's the, obviously, and that's, that's also much more um, so with the, with the new musical, I guess. I was going to say, if Michael Blaine had directed Susan Gold, you think it would have gone to that? I, mean, just I guess, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't think so. I think it would have been, but you know, but honestly, I, because of that, that experience, I'm not a big fan of workshops anymore. I think workshops, readings, yes, readings, 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 get the material right, get it right. But workshops are sort of a lie. Like they're sort of, um, um, because they're not really the production. They're sort of the production, but not really. And the problem is that when you're doing a workshop, like, you know, you do it in a place like this, right? People come and watch, and you have, you come up, you come up with all these creative solutions to fill in the blanks that you don't have. So you decide, you're all going to wear black, or you're all going to wear white, you're all going to wear, you know, and, and they have to do the furniture, and we're going to all do it with chairs, and it's just going to be chairs and ladders, and everything goes around, and that's going to stand in for everything. And what happens is people fall in love with the creative solutions. And I swear to God, you can go to a Broadway musical, and the ones that were done in workshops, they look like workshops on stage. Because the actors are moving the furniture. And, you know, I mean, and everything takes place in kind of limbo, and it's all sort of, you know, stylized. And you can, you can see it. And as opposed to uh, design something from the ground up with a... Yeah, I know, my favorite thing I love is a kissing cake. Uh, Michael Brooks said this number in the second one called Bianca, but in the first draft, they didn't get cut, they didn't want the number eight. I said, no, I think we need Bianca. I said, I know it's kind of a simple little song, but I think we need to, uh, the off-stage romance between Bill Cumberland and Lois Lane has to be resolved, and right now it's not resolved. And we can't, even though their on-stage relationship is resolved, we have to make sure it's Shakespeare comedy. Everybody has to be properly matched up and right at the end. So I think we need this, so that he needs to do this to sort of win her back for the last time. They have to they have a fight. So he needs to win her back. And, you know, and Michael Bress is this incredible athlete and gymnast and everything and dancer. And um, I based all his movement on kind of Gene Kelly kind of stuff. And Robin Wagner had this great, fabulous set that was like this back brick wall with two uh, catwalks, you know, going up to these layers of uh, these dressing rooms. And what I wanted to do in her dressing rooms at the top, at the end of the number, like Gene Kelly and the pirate, you know, he climbs up to her dressing room, and there she is, and she pulls inside the dressing room, and that's it, you know, they made up. And we didn't know exactly how that was going to happen. We knew the set was, you know, take his way, and we knew there were sort of all kinds of options of stairs and, you know, railings and poles and all this kind of stuff. I thought he was just going to, you know, I'd be lucky if he just climb hand over hand and, you know, right. get himself up there. And in the rehearsal studio, you know, everybody, you know, in the rehearsal, and you first start doing it in front of other people, and now the people in the cast are like, hey, 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 you're not, oh, you're so great, you're so great. And we get to the end of Michael's number, and the music would play, and he would like, you know, <laughs> and, he, and he'd look over at me shaking his head like, this is ridiculous, you know what I mean? And, and I don't know if this is going to work, and I'm like, I don't know, I feel stupid, but you know, it's, and, and sure enough, the first day we got in the, actually we had a day on the set before we ever started official tech, because that 
set was complicated. We had a day just to work on that set. And Michael started fooling around. And he started figuring out where he could climb up. And he'd climb up. And he's so, like, I, I turned around and he was upside down. He was, like, locked his legs around. He was hanging upside down. And it was the most spectacular thing. I mean, he just, he basically invented that, you know, how he climbed up there. He swung around the floor. Stopped the show every night, you know, low world gets a Tony nomination. And, I mean, it was a thrilling, thrilling moment. Well, if we were doing a workshop in Kissimmee, I don't know what the end of that would It would have been, or, or we would have come up with something to get us through the workshop. Then we would have fallen in love with that. And everybody would say, no, don't change it. Don't do anything else. What, what you do in the studio is great. So I think that, you know, that's the problem, is just to create. It's interesting yeah. that when Stuart Oster started the musical theater, which I believe was before any of the others, his, his notion was always the gypsy run-through. But he always said, you know, in the gypsy, in the stories that one hears of Mary Martin and Sound of Music coming down on an A-frame ladder, yeah. you know, the A-frame ladder in that instance was, was, was the, the way of telling you that this was a mountain. Right. The set had been designed already. Right. And so that was just the... No, it's different when you go down to watch a run-through at 890. And you have stand-ins for things, but you know what it's going to be. Right. And you know the actors feel a little silly because I remember when we did seventy seventy six and it had a turntable, and nobody could understand the logic of the turntable. It started outside the thing, and I was telling the guys, you go in this door, and then you're there, and then it's going to freeze, and a tableau comes around, and you're all frozen in the tableau. And they all thought I had the geography wrong. They all thought they were going to end up in the wrong place, and they weren't going to get there. And I was like, I'm just telling them, it's gonna work. <laughs> and they, and in the rehearsal room, you know, you see them, you know, walk through these little, you know, tape. And it wasn't even, even in the door frames. There's a tape on the floor. They walk through the tape, and there's this. <laughs> they all get it in place and hit this tableau. And I felt stupid as could be. And then we finally got on the set, and lo and behold, they walked through the doors. Oh, oh, my table's that table? Oh, oh, okay. And then they were there, and then they came around, and now I've got to pause every night. Mm. So, you know, the thing is, is that it's, that's something that only worked. With the set. Like, and when you watched it in rehearsal, you were like, this is horrible. <laughs> you know? When I took Mary Ryan to a rehearsal at South Pacific, the National Rhythm Turntable at the, mm-hmm. at the appropriate moment, Trevor and like white children's school. Hands, everybody up. We walked around. Because <laughs> 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 they couldn't move. Yeah, you're happy. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. I love that. Yeah, thank you lots. It's great. Do we have any, any questions from anybody that you would like to ask? I could ask one thing on it. Since it's a bashful group. Up in television. Um, I know that you choreograph the music and I believe you can say that you are scheduled to direct and choreograph television production on some matches with Um What was the music that experience like? It's one thing to do choreography, but now you have to decide exactly where you're looking at it from. Yeah, yeah. Well, that was great. Actually, that was one place where my brother was very helpful because just him relating to his experience as a Christian with Santa Claus and Penny and his development Chicago, especially I we were doing, we were prepping music in London, we were in Chicago, so, but, um, in Toronto, we, well, we, we missed each other, we, they came back and whatnot, not, but, um, but they, uh, hearing him saying, you know, how, what a wonderful thing it is, you can cut from thing to thing, you know, that you can, you know, jump up here and land someplace else, you know, come out of the store and turn the corner and not have to be around the corner, but then be further away, and, you know, just the freedom that that gives you. Um, but I, most of the things in music man, I sort of choreographed 360 degrees, not knowing exactly where the camera would be. Sometimes we knew where the camera would be, and sometimes we, you know, it was a You choreographed it and the director would decide. Yeah, and then the director and the 
and the director of photography would come in and watch the numbers of rehearsal, so decide where they think the camera would be. And there were some things that were created for that, you know. Um, they asked you to change things? Sometimes you just adapt things. I mean, but the thing that always kind of freaked me out is that sometimes when you reverse, you, you may have shot like a master shot of something, and then you go in from something close, and all of a sudden they'd like be pushing furniture around and changing it. And I'd be like, but you can't, because it was just, but some, but in a way the perspective changes when you just go close up and you don't, you actually, some, you know, oh, we need something in the foreground there, so that, let's say they move it, and the next time they come that end, because they want to get it across the table to me. And you're, but in the master shop, the table is out there, but somehow it, it worked, and they know. And then you go, okay, and then you look at it, and it makes sense. I almost wish, though, in music management, because a lot of times I choreographed just the whole room, so in case, no matter where the camera was, there'd be something that, you know, something was in the background. Sometimes I wish that I hadn't, that I'd been more specific, and kept it sort of just like we're just <coughs> because sometimes I think there was too much, ed, you know, too, either too much cutting to. to you know, the gravy is going to meet. So that I wish that sometimes I just had given fewer options in a way that we could just remain. Um, Did they invite you into the editing? They were editing it in Los Angeles, so I uh, was sent compilations that I sort of commented on and, and sent them back, but it's not the same as being in the room. I mean, but also, I mean, these are sort of experienced filmmakers, and Jeff Lecter and James Chance, the um, cinematographer, who were very generous to me and very, you know, Helpful, but you should realize, oh, okay, maybe, maybe sometimes it's better just to do eight counts of eight, face in front, just that, you know, and, and make it kind of proscenium like. Sometimes I wish I'd done things a little more proscenium like. But, uh, but there's some things that, you know, that, uh, it's, it's, it's very different because you have such freedom. And didn't you come in and help the mattress production a few years ago? I did. I got it, I was my only sort of one of those when I got a call. It was crazy, I guess. Yeah, because it didn't play out. Yeah, in previews in New York, and I got a call that I come in and just, you know, Jerry Gutierrez. So it was, that was great when I first met Jerry, um, who was character now. Um, but, you know, that was also, that's a tricky situation because you're sort of going into, you know. It wasn't quite cheap, though. No, because, but in that, in that, that was the case where the, the, they were in a company, you know, nervous because they weren't quite, you know, they were already in performance and, it's working and it's not, and, um, and you know, I, 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 it's always, it's like, I'll always say that. I came in with a assignment to do a couple of things, but I ended up doing more. And all I could think of was, um, you know, it's hard when you're not in on the ground floor uh, something, and you have to, and there's only limitations of what you can do. And all I could think of is there's a line in all that jazz, which I still think is the best movie about Broadway ever <laughs> made. Um, where uh, there's a dancer who's, you know, having trouble and, and with Bob Fossey here and Rashad pulls her aside and says, I can't, as he said, I can't make you a, I can't make you a great dancer. I don't even know if I can make you a good dancer, but I can make you a better dancer. And that's what you sort of feel in that situation, which is I don't know if I can make this, I don't know if I can make everything great, but I think I can make it better. And in that instance, when you came in, were you, were you asked, was it sort of a general help call, or was it the one that number fixed? At, at first, it was a very specific list of things to, to do. And then it, it took that expanded. I remember one time, it was a song, um, Normandy, which I didn't, they were rehearsing the song Normandy, which wasn't on my little, little list. list of things. So I hadn't really looked at it, but I'd seen the show a couple of times, and I knew the song. And they were working with Jake. <coughs> 
So they're up on stage, and, and Jerry's rehearsing the number, and I'm just sitting in the house watching. And at one point, Jerry turns around and asks me a question, and it's a question, and Jerry says, you know, you know about here. So I came up there, and then I was just we were playing with some things. The next thing I know, Jerry's in the house, <laughs> and I'm up there. It's okay. Like, okay. <laughs> All right. And then the next thing I know, I turn around and Jerry's gone. <laughs> I'm home. So I turn to the actors and I'm like, okay. 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 All right. You know, because I like to sort of be very prepared. At least, at least have a, a blueprint when you walk in. And then if it adapts, you know, fine. But that was sort of funny. But I think that's a point where, and I, I totally understand that. I've been there myself. You think, you know, just put off all the cards. I don't know. I don't know. You just want to open up the window and say, Has anybody got an idea? Because I'm just out of here. Somebody else has a question. I know. Yeah, sometimes, you know, you feel, but some people just sort of step away and sort of think, you know. And I just feel like the, the mantra should be what's the story, what's the story, what's the story. Because it's just, you know, I just feel like if, the, if you sort of outline a number well, that the steps will follow. If you figured out a style and figured out why they're dancing and who's dancing and what their relationships are, the steps will follow. You know, they'll come. So, what that you haven't done would you like to do? Well, I'd like to. Uh, I'd like to be on board of something. You know, as a, as a director from the beginning of a new musical and kind of see it through. I mean, that's experience that. I hadn't really had of sort of sitting in a room with, with uh, authors and composers and lyricists and say, okay, how can we musicalize the story, you know, and where will the songs come and why? So I've never had that experience really been, in, you know, usually when I come on writing new musicals, there's something underway. Even if it changes, you know, as I'm there, it's I, somebody else has been there ahead of me. But that's more, I would think, imagine that would be mostly a choreographer situation. A choreographer comes yeah. in later, a director yeah. starts from the beginning. Yeah. But I'm sure people have approached you about a couple of things, and maybe you'll find Well, it's also kind of scary, because, you know, there's sometimes, I had somebody ask me the other day, you know, what's your dream project, you know? You know I had $10 million, it's, and it's hard to say no. Because um, it's also, again, it's that thing of the choreographer having a shield. There's something about somebody else initiating a project. And you're sort of along, you know, to, to help guide it, bring it forward. But it's another thing when you stand up and say, oh, everybody follow me. You know, I want to do, you know, a musical version of War and Peace. I think it's great. It's going to be huge. It's going to be the next one is. Let's go. You know, and that's, that's hard to sort of feel like, uh, you know, you're going to lead the charge. Have you turned down any jobs you regret? That's interesting. Um, there's some things that I wasn't able to do that I didn't regret. <laughs> 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 um, uh, you know, it's funny because actually uh, there are times when you know I've done shows that that were sort of musical stage, like Violet on Broadway or Seventy Seventy Six or even Little Shop, and which again is it's not a choreographer showcase; it's about the show, but. I love the material and the story of those shows so much, and I love the people I worked with on those shows, that they were all very satisfying. So though, even though it's not, uh, doesn't, you know, get you a lot of sort of attention um, in some ways, um, I just also, you know, feel that people had a good, you know, people who had a good experience seeing those shows, and you feel like, oh, you may not know 
what my contribution is to this. But that's, that's, that's okay. Yeah. I think I mean I think it's a very important point. I think it's that you shouldn't have to feel defensive of you know of, yeah. of that. I think you should always be able. Yeah, we've all got. I've never on the. On Kissing Kate, there were things Michael Blake when I laughed because I said, well, there, you know, he would say that, well, there are views that have, you know, credited me for things you've done and they blame me for things you've done. <laughs> 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 it's the same thing. You never, you know, it's, uh, the hard thing is, is that musicals are a messy collaboration. You know, they are. I mean, and, and we're about assembling things. And, you know, ultimately, it's their job, but, you know, what, what, critics do is they, they're trying to sort of disassemble the show. They're trying to just sort of say, well, you did well, and you didn't we'll do well, and you did okay, and you did better than the last one, and you did worse than your last one. And, and it's, you know, it's not that simple, ever. You know, it's not that simple, ever. And, uh, and so it's, uh, and quite honestly, something, you know, in, in, in a wonderful town, I mean, the fact that Donna is sort of getting these absolutely glowing reviews, which she deserves every single one, because she's I mean, she's you know, brilliant in this part, and she's fearless in this part, and she um, uh, has worked her butt off in this part. And so, and I'm just glad that I was able to sort of, you know, uh, escort her <laughs> in that way. And and that, uh, that that's actually sort of more satisfying than if it was, you know, um, a solo would you, would you ever want to direct a play without music? Yeah. I would be, you know, I also, I, I think that the, what I would love to do is direct a play that sort of has the energy of a musical, you know, a Kaufman and Hardy comedy or something like that. Something that has, uh, you know, a lot of uh, vibrant characters who, you know, interleave a lot. I think that would be, you know, and, and a comedy. I think that would be it's actually fun to do. interesting if you track plays that great director choreographers have directed, some of them, you know, have been wonderful and some of them have been not wonderful at yeah. all. So it's, a, it's sort of probably scarier than, than, than what it might be. Yeah, I think so. But I also think there's, yeah, there's there's always that sense of, of people, you know, every everybody's thing uh, goes away. Michael Blake said, "You're lucky if one out of three things works." We are, and then you know, you're 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 just trying to ride. I remember it was actually the day after Charlie's open. It was the same season as Susical. Susical, and then Bob is just like, oh, God, I can't, you know. This is exhausting. And I had a meeting with Robin Wagner about the tour of Kiss Me Kate. Um, the day after the always opened, actually. And I went down to the studio, which was in the 890. And there I go into Robin Wagner's studio. And on the wall, across another row, and another row, are about, I don't know, 50 or 60 show posters. Mm-hmm. All his shows. And it starts with, you know, Hey, Art and Jesus Christ Superstar. Dreamcare, they're all in order. You know, and then Dream goes to 47th Street. You know, all the way along the way, right to Kissing Kate. Well, they, including all the clubs. They were all up there, every single one. All just in chronological order across. And I just, I just sort of, it was like a little pivot. It was like, well, I get it. I get it. It's about a career. Keep going. And, it, and if you're lucky enough to stay in the game, and if you're lucky enough that somebody will keep, you know, is crazy enough to offer you another job, that you just keep going, you just keep trying, you can't sort of, you know, obviously at some point, if you don't, <laughs> at a certain point, deliver, it's, you know, the phone will stop ringing, but you can't, you know, get to sort of self-defeated in that way. I remember um, a time after the show Footloose opened, where Walter Bobby had directed Chicago and then Footloose, although he was actually contracted for Footloose first, and the okay. lack of success of Footloose was perfect. Yeah. And he said he was having lunch with John Lee Bay a while afterwards, and John Lee was a very caustic and funny guy. He said, well, I have good news for you, Dad. 
bad news is it takes three years to get over this. <laughs> the good news is two years before you pass. I've commented this. Any questions? Yeah. I you know what? I think it's I think still choreography is an apprenticeship art. I I don't I don't know many many choreographers that weren't dancers first, weren't then dance actors, weren't then assistant choreographers, then maybe put together a show. I mean, you always get hand me downs. That's the way it happens. And that either you're you know, the dance captain of the show. And I think there's, you either have the mindset that, even like Susan Shulman said, you know, that uh, even when I was in the ensemble, I was sort of interested in the bigger picture. And, you know, she said, I raised my hand and said, aren't we all supposed to be? Kind of <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but, uh, I think that it, it, that once you, if you have the interest in that, and sort of being interested in the whole, that people pick up on that. And then, that's how you become a dance captain, or then maybe asked to assist, or if you're the dance captain of the show, maybe you're asked to help put together the national tour, or another a subsequent production of it, because you know this, you know, dance captains honestly know the choreography better than me now, because they maintain it every day and teach it. And then maybe from that, you know, you go off to a little theater to recreate somebody's work, but if they like you there, and you're, you know, you're together, and you're, you know, and, uh, and you're prepared, and you're uh, positive, and you're actors get along with you, that little theater where you went to recreate somebody's work, maybe they'll ask you back next year to do your own thing. Or a choreographer that you're assisting is asked to do a job, and they can't do it. They say, well, why don't you ask her? So I think it, it definitely, that's the way it worked for me. I certainly got my brother's hand-me-downs at first, and you know, other people's hand-me-downs, and somebody dropped out and somebody at the last minute. So I think that it's, you know, if you can, I mean, the, the foundation has a great observership program, and you know, that kind of thing is really, uh... Did you find yourself saying, oh, I'm not going anymore? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I never, I didn't consciously say, I'm stopping dancing and I'm going to just choreograph now. Um, I, I, I was actually assisting my brother, which, you know, it's kind of, for a couple of years there, obviously, it was very tough because as an assistant choreographer, you're in limbo land, you're not covered by either union. And uh, so I, and at that point, my brother was just starting out. So as an assistant, you're only as powerful as your the choreographer you're working with is. Because I now put, I now almost always my choreographer's deal as part of my deal, and I ask for what I think they need, um, you know, in conjunction with them, because it's the only way they get protected. Anyway. Um, but but it was kind of scary. I mean, all of a sudden I sort of turned around and went, oh, I haven't danced in anything in like a year, and then all of a sudden it was two years. But, um, but it was, you know, for a lot of it, it was scary when my sort of equity insurance went out, and I wasn't a member of SSDC yet, and I was working as a assistant choreographer. But, you know, actually, the assistant choreographer subsequent to me, and my brother worked, made much more money than I did because he, as he got, became more successful. They were able to get better. <coughs> so it was it's tricky, you know. You're sort of, you, know, you are on this kind of limbo layer. Um, but I think there are a lot of people who sort of go back and forth, which I think is still okay, you know, because I think nobody doesn't understand the need to work constantly and, you know, and things like that, so I think that, you know, that, that there is a sense where it's like, oh, it's like, I guess I'm not before, you know, I'm right there. Yeah. How does your approach differ when working on a play versus a musical? Um, you know what, I haven't directed any. No, but you've done... 
Or dances for for place. Yes, that's true. Like with Ring Around the Moon. Well, you then have to sort of realize that uh, you're especially working with actors. You know, and, and actors can be very much. Oh God, here comes a choreographer. Because let's face it, most actors when the choreographer walks in the room. They're terrified. They're like, just please don't make me feel like an idiot. <laughs> don't make me do something I can't do. Don't make me feel like an idiot. So I think that that the mo- most important thing is to sort of earn people's trust and hopefully, um, you know, talk your talk a little bit in a way. I think to sort of talk about, you know, what is the scene about and what how. You know, I remember what I was doing in seventy seventy six and Ray Gettleman's big molasses drum display, and I actually staged the number. And I'm sure if you looked on the schedule and said, you know, Greg's Kathleen for like two hours, and they're like, oh, God, here we go. <laughs> it was a little sort of like, I'm not so sure about this. The choreographer's staging my, you know, my books on. And I started to sort of talk him through it, and I could see he was a little, like, resistant. Because, you, you know, I always kind of checking in their eyes to see, do you, do, you, do you get it? Number one, do you agree with it? Number two, you know, does it make, does it make sense to you? So... I said, you know, Greg, let me just take, let me just walk you through the whole shape of it, you know, before we get specific. Let me just take you through the real basic pattern of what I think this is. And so we just walked through the whole song, just very general, saying, and I think this is, and, and you could see there was a reason for it, so that by the time you get to this lyric, you're directing it to him, you know, and by the time you get to that lyric, you're directing it to him. And at this point, all the relationships are established, so there's a reason why. And, you know, once we got through the whole shape, then we sort of took a break. And after the break, he came over and I was kind of like sitting on the floor. He came over and, said, and he said, I think I like that shape. That shape. It's like, okay, great. Then we can start working on the specifics, you know, exactly what and when and where. But, you know, but I could see that if I started doing the specifics too soon, it, he would have resisted because it, it didn't make sense to him yet. You know? So I we sort of, and I think you have to, that's another thing I think I've learned from, from my brother, from other people that I respect, is that they're somehow able to adapt their style to the actor they're working with it with without judging them. So they say, you know what, some people are like, just give it to me straight. Just give it to me straight, you know, tell me what you want. Like, yeah, just, yeah. And there are some people who sort of need to very be eased gently into it and casual and, you know, just kind of you know, try it out before we get specific. And there's some people that, you know, like a lot of humor in the room, you know, want to be relaxed and comfort that way, and a lot of people who sort of, yeah, I mean, you just have to kind of, I think, judge each person, you have to judge each person what they need and not, or give them what they need without, you know, feeling uh, judgmental about that. Hopefully get, it, get them right the first yeah. time. Yeah, well, I feel like, I feel like you're sort of like a, you know, uh, you know, Herding dog, you know, sort of saying, oh, we're gently going to get, I'm not just going to say you here and you there and you there. I think that's where we're going. You know, we're deciding what you're in your head. I think that's where we're going. But we're going to gently, 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 gently. And as we do that, it might change the shape of where we're going because then all of a sudden they take off and go, oh, that's a cool idea. You know, but you have to have a sense in your head, I think, of where you think it's going. Uh, you talked about your background as a dancer, of course, with the technology and the choreography. Did you have uh, any thinking as well that brought you? Because obviously, by yeah. being a director now, I was probably, you know, need to know kind of acting techniques and 
about how you replace an actor or a dancer? You mean in a long run show? Mm, in rehearsal. You know, I'm lucky that I've never gone through that. I've never gone through I've been in shows where I've seen that happen with the director, um, but I've never had to go through that myself. Because I think that's, that's very hard and obviously very... Um, uh, I, I went through it just on Little Shop of Horrors in terms of we did this out-of-town tryout in uh, Florida with a different director, and then when a new director came on board, uh, the cast almost changed almost completely, except for Andrew Foster, who uh, was playing Seymour. But again, it was sort of, um, uh, I, you know, what, it, I wasn't involved in the casting of the show the first time around, and the second time around I was involved, but it wasn't, it was, the decision was made by Jerry Zachs to sort of, let's, uh, let's go back to the drawing board. He basically said, I won't come out on the show unless I am able to go back to the drawing board kind of you know, uh, we look at everything. Um, and, and including, I met with him, you know, because he had to make sure that in all, anybody who did continue with it was his choice for us to continue. But I think that's, that's a tricky thing, and I think it's a tricky thing to do without uh, moralizing people. Um, with moralizing the rest of the past. Um, I think, though, that, you know, quite honestly, I think that when something like my sister's experience, um, you know, everybody's very optimistic in the rehearsal process. Everybody thinks, you know, you think positive, and you keep thinking, even if you have some negative, you know, voice in the back of your head that something's not quite right, you think, well, it'll get better, right? You know, when, you know, the rehearsal rooms, like, what's in that costume to set? So you really lift everything. You know, we'll be more, it'll coalesce. And even if you're teching it, things seem a little wonky. You're like, you know, when the audience gets here, <laughs> and then even you know, when the audience gets there, you think, well, in previews, they'll just don't get, they'll get comfortable with it. Because you know, you're always thinking optimistically, it's going to all come together and it's going to work. I mean, even as the reviews are coming out, you're thinking, well, maybe they'll see something that they don't really respond to. It. And I, I think that that one of the um, cardinals said to me. 
in putting uh, on, a, on a production is to assume. And I think that the, the worst thing is to assume that everybody else has the same, feels the same way about it. And so I think it's part of your job as a director to kind of state the audience a lot. Just because, you know, you might, I mean, as crazy as it is, it's like, does everybody know we're doing a comedy? Because <laughs> <laughs> you, know I mean? you never know. I mean, there are people who sort of think, oh, I did, I, you know, does, does everybody think that, does everybody know that we're doing, that we're setting this in this time period and we're all going to do it of this style and we're all going to, you know, I mean, some of the big obvious questions, but I think sometimes things can get into trouble when people, oh, I thought we were doing, I thought the whole, I thought it was a show about, you know, the mother-daughter and, and that revelation. So when you go into the middle of the previews and say, no, that scene's going to be cut in the second act, but I thought that's what the whole play was about, you know? And, <laughs> Fred Evan in a, in a panel years ago said that, that he felt that one of the things about working on a musical that was produced by Hal Prince is that when, when rehearsal started, you all were working on exactly the same show, and the script was finished, it was completely done, there would be absolutely no changes from that moment to the end. He said, of course, it never quite happens that way, but that's what Hal insisted on. And, and forced everybody, on day one of rehearsal, yeah. to know exactly what you're saying, know exactly what the show is. Because yeah. then, and only then, he said, can you fix it? No, because I think yeah, you can't, it's, it's hard, but I think you can't sit back and wait for something to be sort of reveal itself. Like there's, you know, especially with authors like that, oh, but they just want to, I just, you know, if your argument is that I don't think points. we don't need this, let me see it, let me see it. And then, you know, to sort of just think that they'll see it and make the same assumption. And there are times you need to try things. And you, there are things you absolutely, certainly in rehearsal. And, you know, in a previous degree, you need to sort of try things. But I think it's the, the danger is when, you know, and I think that it is like if you have a nagging thing in your head, like, this is not right, this is not right. I think it's like banding, you know, do it fast. Because if you really have, a, a, you know, a, a deep belief that this is this actor isn't right, then... It's, it's not in this, it, you know, it, you have to, it, even though it's hard to admit it to yourself, and because it's hard to, for the consequences of that, you know, I think it's almost better to sort of plunge in and say, let's just take care of it quickly, than to let it sort of fester and fester. I think everybody's optimistic. You have to be optimistic going into a process. Yeah. That's a good, that's a good note. <laughs> Again, this is Hal Prince, and thank you for listening to Masters of the Stage. This program was made possible by support from the Society of Stage Directors and Choreographers, the National Labor Union celebrating five decades representing the needs and aspirations of its members, online at ssdc.org. The online series is presented in collaboration with the American Theatre Wing, dedicated to illuminating how theater is made through the words of the people who make theater. Visit them online at americantheaterwing.org.